HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Are you interested in getting more real life in your real life? If you are, stay tuned for the Revenge of Analog on this episode of Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. I'm Jennifer Leuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. And every time I hear that song and my guests hear that song, my guest today, David Sachs, he had his hands in the air kind of dancing around. No matter what kind of day I'm having, when I hear that music, it always makes me really happy. If you really like that music and it made you happy, go to SoundCloud and look for a DJ named Uptown Nico. He is the mastermind behind that little ditty, and we love him for it. And so give it a listen. It makes people smile. So as I said, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, we're visiting that intersection uh, with David Sachs, author of a book called The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. He's here all the way from Canada. Thank you for coming, David. My pleasure. Long for, way. For this pizza, I'll come anywhere. <laughs> the Roberta's Pizza that is adjacent to the studio is a really, really big draw. I mean, that's there's no other interview that gives you that proximity to deliciousness. Yes. Yes, we love it. So we are going to start this episode of Tech Bites like we always do, like a good meal with an app. And we're going to go around our shipping container and talk about apps that we love, maybe new ones, maybe an old favorite that's been living on your smartphone home screen forever. We'll go first up to the other David on this episode, David Tadashore, our engineer and the Heritage Radio Network studio manager. David? Mission Control. Hello. Mission Control. Um, Houston, yeah. do we have apps? <laughs> we do. <laughs> Not a new app, but uh, one that I've, I've had on my phone and never really used on my phone uh, is the app for Doodle. Uh, Doodle? Doodle. You familiar? 
No, well, but you have a you have a Samsung or something like that. I have. Um, what do I have? I have the Google Pixel, the new Google Pixel. So you have a Google phone, and I have an iPhone. So there are sometimes there are things that you talk about that I don't know what they are, like Doodle. Well, Doodle I think is cross-platform. It's it's no relation to Google. Um, it is like a scheduling app, and it allows you to uh, coordinate with multiple different people. Um, like if you want to set up a meeting or um, something of that nature, you can like propose a bunch of different times and then everybody will indicate like which times work for them. And uh, you can just using that grid uh, determine what is the best time for everybody. So I was in an Uber on the way over to work, side plug Uber, and I was <laughs> on the doodle um, just doing a little bit of work on my drive into work. So... I first was hoping it would be related to cheese doodle, and it's not. And then I was hoping that it would be related to, like, doodling or drawing or some sort of tactile finger drawing thing. And then it turns out it's just productivity. Yeah, unfortunately. It's not tactile. It's not, it's not analog. It's, it's pure digital. Although I, I suppose it is digitally facilitating an analog result. In Possibly. A way. 90% of the time is just conference calls. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's like I, drudgery in the service of more drudgery. I, I was doodling uh, or, you know, doodle polling people to set up a phone call. So, yeah. Well, and maybe the name sort of indicates the value of all that busy work. I'm just doodling. That's a really good point. Doodle yeah. doodle. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Throw away. Maybe somebody needs to make a cheese doodle app. Maybe drawing with a cheese doodle would be a fun app. There's your marketing food <laughs> advertising background. It's like, hey, cheese doodles, have I got a million-dollar idea for you? What did you think of when he said doodle? Uh, I thought of drawing. Uh, drawing. Yeah. yeah, like Microsoft Doodle or, or you know, like early Windows 95 Paint. Right, mm. paintbrush, the paintbrush yes. thing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Old and then, people, and then old I've, people on radio. And then, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the conference call thing where whenever I talk to someone who's really kind of important and busy – and it's like, hey, so can we have a, a phone chat? And they're like, yeah, let me send you a doodle. And then it's like, okay, three months from now, there's you know a one-hour window um, on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m. There's a, yes. you know, and, or you can speak to me for 10 minutes. I'm going to be uh, on my treadmill. Um, <laughs> maybe the they should have the called sheds. it Windows. Yeah. <laughs> I think that name is already yeah. taken, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So other David, David, Canadian David, do you have an app that you like? Or that you Related to food? No, anything. Anything. Any app, it's any just app personal. Um, ooh, good question. Um, the app intro is my icebreaker. The and app also intro. a useful potential discovery for our listeners. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I hit a point where I just stopped downloading apps. And now I use basically three apps all the time. Is it because you had app fatigue or you didn't want to update your software? Or? <clears throat> no, I, I update my software, but it was definitely app fatigue. It's like, I, I don't even use any of this stuff. Um, uh, the only, I would say, an enjoyable app that I love, the one that's a pleasure versus the regular stuff, is the uh, Magic Seaweed Surf Forecast app. Magic, so, seaweed, Magic seaweed is Surf a, Forecast is a surf app. Uh, forecast website. And their app is the best one of the uh, surf forecast. And you don't have to be a meteorologist to read it. You can kind of just look at the pictures and figure out when the surf's going to be good. Uh, even though I lived in landlocked Toronto, I still surf on the Great Lakes or attempt to or at least claim to. So um, this lets me know whether it's uh, worthwhile to go out or not. Okay. Is it a free app? It is. Although, of course, then you get to unlock it for the good juicy stuff. 
So free app, and is it for both iPhone and no Android? Idea. Which no which phone are you on? I'm on iPhone. Okay, yeah. so definitely for iPhone. I'm not sure it's on both. Yeah. Let's just say yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with totally functional apps, and um, I'm going to try and be a little bit agnostic about it. I like the airline apps. I like the airline apps, and I use them when I travel, especially when I know it's going to be busy, and I download them, use the barcode, electronic check-in, e-ticket, all of that stuff, so you can just breeze through, check in early as soon as the 24 hours pops, and so you're all ready to go. And then when my trip is over, I delete it off my phone. You delete that app. I delete that app. I like to keep one home screen, and that's it, and not have like a bajillion different things. Mm -hmm. So I add and subtract as needed. So I'm not going to make specifically a plug for a single airline, but I will say that whenever I fly, I download the app, I have it. While I'm ready to go, I use it. And then when I come home, I delete it. I'm surprised there isn't a universal airline one that you can just use to check. They they all want their walled gardens, and each one is so different. Well, the other thing, too, is that some forget about just why wouldn't they share an app for check-in. There are some airlines that won't share their fare and scheduling with some of the tracking apps. Right. One of the one of the airline airfare tracking apps that I like that I've mentioned before on this show is called Hopper, which I think is great, where you put in um, a trip that you want to watch and it'll start watching it for you and it's predictive. So it'll pull current flight prices and say, you should buy it now, you should wait, the lowest price is going to be you know three months from now or whatever the date is. But it makes a note in it saying that like Delta, flights aren't listed because Delta won't let it pull the information. Mm. So anyway, if they can't even do that. I can't even see how they could. They can't even get together on points. Right. You know? I know. How are they going to get together over tech? You need those rivalries. You do. Theoretically, they should be good for business, which is a nice segue into business. 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 The business of this book, The Revenge of Analog. Um, Real Things and Why They Matter, out in November 2016. And... This is the third book David's written? Third? He was actually on Heritage Radio Network earlier in May 2014 for a book called Tastemakers, which is about how food trends happen. Here's a a secret, potentially plot spoiler. They don't happen spontaneously. (laughs) And technology is involved. That was back in May 2014. He was a guest on Mitchell Davis's show, Taste Matters. It's episode 129 if you're interested in checking out more of David Sachs. But anyway, Revenge of Analog is almost like a... Um, I almost saw it as like a compendium point-counterpoint in some ways. Whereas the Tastemakers really talks about a lot of the impact of technology so just sort of driving these things forward primarily in a social media sense. And then the Revenge of Analog is really sort of taking a look at different genres of analog things that you do and how they came very close to dying and then were reborn primarily by really strong brands. Yeah. Um, uh, that That's a great summary of saying it. I would be curious to know what inspired you and prompted you to write the Revenge of Analog book. It was a couple things. Um, you know, one of them was an experience I had to, 
to make it sort of relevant to food. Um, back in 2007, when I was invited for a Friday night dinner at, at the friend of um, uh, a friend of mine in Toronto, and there were I think uh, four other couples at the table. My wife and I were just dating at the time, and. Everybody at the table had recently gotten Blackberries. This was sort of the first pre-iPhone we're talking. I had a Blackberry. Yeah. Um, I was everybody super excited when I got it. Yeah, I was really I excited one. about yeah, it. I love that Brick Breaker game. Um, and everybody at the table was just heads down, BBMing away with other people throughout the entire meal. My wife and I were the only ones without it. And it was just like the most awkward, strange, and unpleasant experience. And little did we know that that experience would basically become what everybody's experiences would be going forward at dinner parties and meals uh, over the next couple of years. And within a few months, you know, the two of us were heads down with our phones, just like everybody else at, at the table. Um, but that and a couple of other things got me thinking about the way that technology, digital technology and its sort of growing presence in our lives was actually affecting the way we lived our lives. And at the same time as all that was happening and we were becoming more and more enmeshed with digital technology and using it, um, there was the opposite that was occurring, which was many of the analog businesses and goods and technologies and ideas that digital technology was you know, shrinking and was supposed to completely wipe out were all of a sudden um, growing again. Uh, so vinyl records, books and bookstores, um, new interesting print publications. You know, in the food world, there's been so many of these new magazines and, and, and publications that have started up. Uh, again, tactile, physical ones, right, in paper. And, uh, and so it seemed as though just when we had dismissed it and assumed that it would sort of go off into the sunset, analog was having this renaissance that just kept growing. So it's an observation that came to fruition, it sounds like, over several years then, because 2007 yeah. seems a lifetime ago, even though it's it's just a little it's over a decade. World. But in terms of... Pre-recession, yeah. What, what we've experienced in terms of technology... Um, Oh, yeah. This the is pre, past 11 years is just crazy. Pre-smartphone. Um, so, yeah. And, and this was a book that I tried to write and propose to publishers several times over those years. And, it, you know, the, the concept I had was very different. It was more akin to what you talked about uh, before our interview, which was, you know, a digital diet. Oh, I'm going to, like, wean myself off technology and see how that changes my life. And then... You know, it went in different directions, but it also, it wasn't, people weren't ready for it, right? The, this was still very much the sort of early spring shoots of, of analog having a revival. Um, but now I think, you know, it's, it's sort of all around us and it's kind of undeniable. You know, nobody can say, oh, vinyl records aren't coming back. It's like, look, over the past 10 years, you know, sales have grown by 15 times in, in vinyl records, right? And turntables and, and, uh, and these other technologies, you know, it's sort of all around, it's been chronicled. It's, it's something that people are talking about now. And I think it's because we needed that decade of living with smartphones. Um, so going from having digital technology being in a fixed place to constantly having it with us in our pockets, right? Um, uh, we needed that 10 years of living with that technology to see where it left gaps and to sort of look beyond that into, um, into what the advantages and sort of pleasures of analog are and, and how we can uh, use those in our day-to-day -day life. 
It's interesting to say that we needed some time with our technology to make a, to start making some initial conclusions about it and about how it impacts our our life. Um, Ten years is such a short period of time in the grand scheme of things, and it's such a short period of time for a culture and a society. But the last ten years have been kind of a crazy roller coaster and a lot of shaking out. And one of the really kind of almost simple and obvious uh, statements that you make in the book early on was, you know, to be the best, newest, greatest thing in technology is very fleeting. And it's an it's a sort of relentless chase and you only have it for a moment. Wither the black and then you're right? and then you're and then you've been left behind because it's the next phone, the next program, the next app and all those kinds of and things. And there's where, only one. Yes. There's only one at the top of the heap, right? You you know, you are there is no third place. It's it's very Glengarry Glen Ross. Or if you're not first, you're last. Yeah. Um, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Two very literate references is this is the yeah <laughs> clearly <laughs> highly educated. Um, we like we like to we like to display range on tech yeah. bytes. <laughs> uh, exactly right. There is a you know it's a monopolistic business and and there is no nostalgia for old digital technology um, because there's no value in it. It's all about the latest and the greatest and the most powerful. Moore's law just keeps surging forward. Um, um, and, 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 you know, what is, what is best is, is what's newest. Which is a difficult thing and which I think a lot of the tech companies, you know, really are starting to realize now. And I think it's also something that a lot of the startups don't quite realize that they're chasing either. And when you look at the examples of Amazon and even companies like Blue Apron, where they seem to be so wildly successful because they are doing so many transactions and they have so many users, but what they don't have is retention or profit. Right. Yeah. Profit. That old chestnut, um, kind of key to a business, right? But not in the tech world. In the tech world, it's oddly structured where there are these very strange, uh, almost fictional ways they measure success by right, user engagement or publicity because or downloads. a restaurant that opens up does not have, you know, a venture capital fund backing it with $400 million until the point where it completely owns the market and then it controls it. And that doesn't work in the analog world. So the rules are different. Um, but at the end of the day, if they don't make a profit, you know, what are some food startups that have, that have gone under in the past couple of years? I mean, I'm sure there's, uh, dozens and dozens of them of either food delivery or food technology or whatever, which, you know, at the end of the day, if you, if it doesn't make money, it's not a business, right? So there are so many, so many interesting, uh, stories in this book and, you know, there's so many different facets of, of how we can discuss the things that you talk about. On the one hand, I could almost I could almost subtract out the front half of the book and call it master brand building because a lot of the stories are about these amazing brands that have connected with people. And the analog aspect of it is important, but it almost seems incidental in some ways. The Moleskin story, the Shinola story, um, Lomography, these are really amazing brands that have done 
you know, they had people who were inspired, they saw a community, they reached out and grabbed them, and then they're all kind of bound together by something emotional with the aid of these kind of tactile products. Well, I think I agree with you. I, I don't think that the analog aspect of it's incidental, right? Because an analog brand, uh, a brand for a thing or a service that actually exists in the real physical world, um, is always going to be stronger than a virtual brand. You can't touch Facebook. You can't go into a Facebook store. You can't um, uh, see it or smell it, right? It is entirely a virtual thing. And therefore, our affinity to it and our loyalty to it is relatively fickle. Right, um, which is why huge social networks that preceded it, like Friendster and MySpace or things like Second Life, can be the biggest thing that everybody's talking about and everybody's on. Everyone's part of some community. Would die without it. Have to be on it. Poof, gone. Right. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, that I have in the book, and I actually came out of a story I wrote a couple of years ago for Business Week, is how Yelp. Um, has stayed so strong, and that's by maintaining a offline sort of social network for its core users called the Elite Squad. So if you are kind of a prolific reviewer in a certain city or community, you can be invited to be a member of Yelp's Elite Squad. And uh, you get perks like your reviews get to go on top, and you know you get different badges and crap. But the the most important thing is that Every month in that city, Yelp has money and a, and a human being, a community manager, who creates events for the different elites in that town um, uh, to get together and, um, and you know, enjoy each other's company, essentially. And what does that do? It takes a virtual social network and it makes it a real one that's based in actual human relationships versus, you know, online chat and messaging, which let's just say does not make for great friendships, um, uh, which is why despite – you know, Google buying Zagat and other people trying to outdo Yelp on reviews and, and different ways, Yelp has still remained on top because it has that core of users who are bound to Yelp, not because of the design of it or the advertising or whatever, or even a financial way. It's because like, well, their actual friends are on it. They met their spouse there. They met a friend. They remember when they got taken to a restaurant and you know fed a meal with the other elites, and they want to maintain a part of that real community. Um, that elite community, right? That's that's the Yelp brand, right? That 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 is the the Yelp brand more so than just reviews filled with a lot of exclamation marks. As a sidebar to that, did you see the South Park episode? You're not yelping. No. It, it actually is a pretty uh, good animated articulation of what you just expressed, although um, it, it goes a little bad at the end. Oh, well, I guess, <laughs> of course. I mean, it is, it's still an online review community. Yelp. <laughs> so I think some, you know, some of these brands that are hubbed around um, creative analog things, there's so many, I mean, just as a... You, you could, I think, use this book to teach like a marketing one-on-one class in, in many respects with some of the case studies that you have here, which were just really interesting and also brilliant. Um, but the other thing on the creative side, and, you know, radio, podcasting, music, chefs, these are all, you know, we're surrounded by all of these creative people. One of the things that came through for me in terms of a, of a story arc was for the 
true creative output, you almost are required to have analog because of the finite aspect and the room for like human error almost. That was the case in music. One take, your best take with all the little sort of human elements around it, even writing, fastest way to put your thoughts on paper, all those kinds of things that for the creative set, it really seemed to be the best expression because it's imperfect. Right. And I think the idea that we're constantly looking for the ultimate imperfection, um, again, might work from a sense of you know business productivity, but for the things that we want to enjoy and the, and the creative things, you know, imperfection uh, is often the goal, right? Unique, sort of serendipitous, um, creative imperfection. I, I, let's bring it back to food because while I don't talk about it in the book, I wrote about food for many years. Um, you know, the most interesting restaurants are the ones that um, create things that you can't have anywhere else, and they are often the result of happy accidents of some sort of archaic process, right? Uh, you know, somewhere like Roberta's. Well, why not use this? I'm looking at people eating this food. Happy you know, people eating amazing pizza. So, you know, the, the pizza is, is kind of a Neapolitan-ish style, not, you know, not uh, the, the VPN, but like Neapolitan style wood-fired pizza. Um, has pizza oven technology improved in the past half century to the point where you could have, you know, a perfectly digitally controlled uh, conveyor electric belt, little conveyor belt pizza magic oven, oven pizza um, that could turn things out much quicker uh, and more consistently. So every pie is the exact same. Yes. So why does the wood fired one taste better? Why does the steak cooked over wood charcoal taste better than the one that's been sous vide and then, you know, seared in, in the perfect um, again, like expertly controlled induction cooker. Uh, it's because that interesting imperfection requires the chef or the cook to think on their feet and improvise and work with mistakes. Um, and each time you get a pizza, it's going to be slightly different and it's going to have a different flavor to it and it's going to have a different feel. And you loop that in with the smell of the wood-fired oven and the sight of it. I mean, I, I was just here with my kids and I you know, held my daughter up and I showed them how they made pizza in this like roaring beast of a thing. Um, you know, there is an attraction to that. Um, and there's something you need to that and you will, people will pay a premium for that. Whereas a, you know, frozen pizza or a Domino's pizza, um, you know, it might be more consistent. It might be more profitable, but it's not the same. The imperfections, the imperfections, but amazingness of Roberta's. And this is a good point for us to take a break. Roberta's is a great friend of heritage radio network. We, have our studios on their property, and they are one of our underwriters. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 charity, and we subsist entirely on underwriters like the wonderful company coming up on our break. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous Alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. 
The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sourchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. Well, if you're wondering what the hell you just clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is a book called The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter by David Sachs, who has come all the way from Canada to visit with us in the shipping container studio. If you want to hear more from David Sachs, you can follow him on Twitter at SachsDavid, S-A-X-D-A-V-I-D. If you want to learn more about The Revenge of Analog, visit revengeofanalog.com. He's also been on Heritage Radio Network before on Taste Matters with Mitchell Davis. That's episode 129. Um, talking about a really interesting book called Taste Makers, uh, which is an, is an interesting compendium to this book. Um, it focuses on food trends, how they happen. Um, they don't happen spontaneously, and Instagram has a lot to do with it. That's all I'll say. I don't want to ruin it for you. But before the break, we were just talking about um, the creative aspects of analog technology and how sort of that human touch and, and the room for the imperfections is, is part of what makes it so desirable in a creative space. One of the other interesting things um, that I found in this book particularly when it came to the chapter about paper. Your book is in paper. Um, I'm actually in front of a paper notebook. I write all my show notes on paper. I started off on the computer, but I found it was too distracting. And I spent too much time looking at the screen and not enough time looking at my guest. So I went to notes. Um, the interesting thing about the paper chapter, I thought, was two things. One, paper is basically as old as the dawn of time. So do you think that it's a sure bet to take a look back and see what's sustained itself for the past several centuries? And if it's still here, it's probably a good bet, even if it's going to have a blip in the digital world? I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, paper just works, right? Uh, and and we have an inbuilt reaction to it. It's there. You can do so much with it. Um, but it exists in real space. You know, I think, I think the best example of this, and, you know, I'm going to go back to the restaurant world, and the food world, just to keep us on point. Um, you know, when the iPad came out, this is going to revolutionize restaurants. This is going to revolutionize, you know, menus and wine lists. And, and, you know, this is going to really change the way people order food and interact with it and all that. And like, where do you see iPad menus now? It's like, I, I see it at the airport, right? They, when they renovated the Toronto airport a couple of years ago, they redid all the food things. The food didn't get better. It was just like they put the same crappy food in, in nicer sort of um, uh, surroundings. And every table had an iPad on it. So now you have these like filthy iPads. That, you know, people traveling from all the world are like putting their fingers in their mouths and then like wiping the screen trying to like, 
play on something and it just looks terrible and and it you know stops people from interacting i mean is, is there any good reputable high end or even medium end restaurant where like the ipad improves the dining experience in any way whatsoever uh the, i would say no the only place i would say that the ipad i've seen in my experience enhances the restaurant experience is not on a menu front but on a service table yeah. wait list management yeah. like POS in terms of that systems, in terms of that kind of stuff sure. like they come in you give your number right. they'll text you all of that kind of business like restaurant management service information transactional but in restaurants where they've sat down an iPad with the wine list on the table or a menu, and I've been in actually some more fancy restaurants that do that, it's almost disconcerting to me right? to have the iPad and then yeah. have the server walk away. Right. Well, here you go. Here's a computer full of all sorts of information. Like, do it yourself. Like, no, no, it's, it's your job to guide me through this. That's part of the pleasure, right? That's part of what I'm paying for. You know, don't, don't give me an iPad with, you know, 20,000 wines on it. If you're going to have that, you're going to have a sommelier whose job it's going to be to sort of guide me through that list without having to look at it. And I think it's the same with, you know, the elegance of a printed menu. Um, you know, it's there in front of me. I can, I can look at it. I can peruse it. My kid can take a crayon and draw on it if they don't have, you know, a coloring pad. Um, uh, and, and I can take it with me. It's going to be a souvenir, right? Um, but it also grounds that restaurant in something so that every day when the chef, you know, the, the creative team is sort of puts out what their menu is going to be. It's printed, it's there, and it, it, it exists, right? It's, it's sort of a testament to what they're doing, whereas, oh, we're going to constantly change it. You know, I think that's the thing that digital offers, the, the promise of being able to constantly change, constantly iterate, constantly come up with new versions of things. Um, uh, and, and there's advantages to that, but in another way, it's like sometimes you just have to sort of stop and make a decision and, and have a finality to something. Um, so the iPad menu versus uh, the good old printed one. Well, the New York Public Library is not collecting iPad menus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have an amazing archive of actual paper menus that they have an online project to help catalog so you can search through them. But the, the pieces that are important are, are print as it goes back to, you know, ancient civilization where we still have print archives because the technology that we need to access them is just your eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's, you know, again, a, a pure simplicity to that. Um, so if you're even talking about ordering systems, you know, to have, to give each server a pad of paper and a pen to write down what someone's order is versus, you know, having them being able to record it on their phone and, and different things, you know, when you start making suggestions and requests and things get complicated, well, you have to design that into the system. And if the system doesn't have it, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, so I think, you know, often we're chasing increasing complexity in the name of simplicity. The, the archival quality, I think, also for chefs and creative people. You mentioned in the book um, at one point sitting at your computer, but then looking across at your bookshelf where you had 10 years of notebooks where you had recorded all your interviews and story research for, you know, a decade's worth of stories that you kept. And I know chefs write recipes in notebooks and they make notes and sketches and they keep them and they keep them. I recall seeing not too long ago on Andrew Carmelini, the chef at La Conde Verde and, and the his, William Vale. His he, mother in, in, um, he, interviewed me here oh, perfect. for my first book. Yeah. 
She was lovely. His mom had a radio show here. Was it? Oh, is he the one who also had uh, Fatty Crab? No. no, that's Zach Palacio. Oh, sorry. The that's other. okay. Yes. Andrew but Carmelini. But he posted... Linda Palacio. Yes. Yes. She was lovely. She is, she is lovely. That's a great show. We'll have to go back and look for that one also. But Andrew posted on Instagram a snapshot of one of his old notebooks. And if you really want to keep it and preserve it, I do think paper is the way to go. The other interesting thing that you mentioned in the book in the uh, chapter about the revenge of retail, sort of the, you know, the dawn of the new actual brick and mortar bookstore and things like that, which is heartwarming for everyone to see. And you spoke with the folks at Brooklyn Flea, which is sort of ground zero for hip food retail in a new way. And one of the salient points that they make about that is that it's actually not about the product, but it's about the hang. Yeah, like I, I don't go to, you know, the original Brooklyn Flea when it, when it first started or Smorgasburg, this sort of iteration or other sort of food markets like that for the best meal in town, right? I go because it's it's entertainment. It's fun. I'm going to see people. It's part of the community. It's part of that being out. Um, and I think, you know, as good as the food delivery services can be, uh, again, all they can bring you is is something edible, um, often kind of cold and, and mushed into a plastic container. Uh, With a big plastic container and a bag and all yeah, of that. And, and we're, we're going to do a show about food delivery and the environment. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, there's a lot of people on bikes, so that's good um, uh, in that sense in certain cities. But... Uh, you know, I, I think again, like that, you know, what brings us together at restaurants, what brings us to go out to pay, you know, more money for, for something that we could often have at home or have cheaper, or have delivered even, um, you know, there's an inconvenience factor, there's time. It's, it's that ability to sit and hang and talk. I mean, look around through our, through our porthole at the dining room at Roberta's, which is now filled for a, a, a lovely Tuesday lunch. Um, and, you know, everybody's smiling and laughing and, and, you know, they're eating and or waiting for their orders. But you know, it's, it's that it's that coming together. That's that's what's sort of brought them here. And so things like the Brooklyn Flea, um, uh, you know, food truck gatherings, pop up markets. I mean, they are as much, if not more, an excuse to sort of get together and and do something and be somewhere with other people than they are you know, a, a source of nourishment. <laughs> yeah, the the Facebook group and the Google Hang will never really replicate the warmth of the pot-bellied stove and a good pizza. Yeah, yeah. So we are really out of time, and I will ask you just one quick last question. The Revenge of Analog, did you title it The Revenge of because Analog's going to have the last laugh and last the longest, or... Was it more visceral because you wanted to give analog that sort of aggressive push forward or? I think, well, it was my publisher's idea, so I give them full credit. Um, uh, and I love the title the second I heard it. But, uh, you know, I think I think there is a bit of that um, comeuppance, right? That, that, that you know, the, the hero written off for dead sort of rises back out of... Uh, you know, comes comes strutting back out through the sunset at the end of the day, and and largely because these are things that people love and and didn't necessarily want to go away, um, and so it heartens people to see bookstores coming back and paper book sales rising, and you know the record stores returning to our neighborhoods. I mean, these are positive things overall, and it doesn't 
in any way take away from the growth and the continued growth of you know things like Amazon and streaming services. Those exist. They exist together. They exist in concert. Um, uh, but you know, I, I think it's again analog is having a bit of that last laugh. That hey, you know, not only am I not dead, but I'm I'm growing again. Well, if the dark ages didn't kill off analog, I doubt that the tech era will. <laughs> so as a last thing, I always like to ask my guests a question for a little piece of advice for our listeners, hopefully something that they can find useful in real life. Um, David, you talk to so many people in this book uh, around the world, uh, different business people, chefs, owners. What is your best advice for how to talk to someone, introduce yourself or introduce yourself to somebody or start up a conversation. Put away your phone. Put it away and don't pull it out. The second you do that, you're showing that person that there could be something more important. Um, I know it seems like a simple thing and, and a simple act of courtesy, but I think often we, we, in that moment of insecurity when you meet someone for the first time, you know, a lot of us will tend to reach for it because it's almost like a lifeline out, um, you know, work in that insecurity and build something out of it. That is great advice and very simple and very apropos for the author of a book called The Revenge of Analog. I want to thank David Sachs for coming down from Canada to talk to us today on Tech Bytes. I want to thank all our listeners for joining us and all of our amazing sponsors and underwriters for supporting us. We subsist entirely from generous donations from the likes of you. If you want to help keep us on the air, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and, you know, maybe give us what you spent on pizza this week. If you like the show, come back. We're on live at thir on Thursdays at 11 a.m. I'm Jennifer Leitzi, and this is Tech Bytes. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.